You're listening to Help for Mothers, the podcast that helps mothers with health, education, love, and protection. This is Keisha Chiappinelli. I'm a human rights lawyer and lactation consultant. And this is Augustine Colebrook. I'm a midwife and a maternal child health investigator. We outline the problems and the solutions to the maternity health crisis in the United States. So welcome back to another one of our feature conversations um, on topics that are relevant to birthing people and midwives in uh, during these crazy times, during the pandemic. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking to a great friend of mine, uh, Brittany is in Texas, and we're going to talk to her about a real area of expertise in her life, which is um, surrogate pregnancy, um, intrauterine insemination, and all of the things around non-traditional traditional pregnancies. So I'm so excited to have her on the call. Welcome, Brittany. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Will you do a bigger and broader uh, introduction than I just did, um, sort of saying more about who you are and where you are in the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I am a CPM and an LM in the state of Texas. But uh, well before I started even down my midwifery path as a student, I um, started down the surrogacy journey as a surrogate myself. I have two of my own children and my husband and I had them pretty much back to back. And so we decided pretty quickly that we were done with our own kids, but I loved being pregnant. I had, you know, great, easy pregnancies. I was always that, you know, they, when people say, oh, you're glowing, that was me. You know, like I was always glowing when I was pregnant and had, um, for the most part, a pretty easy time. And I really just enjoyed that. And so I was kind of sad that when we decided we were done with our family, I wasn't gonna get to have that anymore. And that was kind of what led me down looking into and researching surrogacy. And uh, several years later, my husband and I, you know, many talks later, we decided that that was something I was interested in doing. And when you apply, or at least, when I applied, um, the agency that I applied with at the time, one of the questions they asked was, do you want to be a gestational surrogate where, you know, you have no genetic connection to the baby that you're carrying, or do you want to be a traditional surrogate, which is where your own eggs are used? And I was kind of like, Meh, I don't care. It's, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm not a blood is thicker than water type of person. I believe that families, you know, our family is who we make to be our family, not necessarily who we're connected through, uh, connected to through blood, possibly stemming from the fact that I don't know my own biological father. So it was easier for me to kind of differentiate those ties. So I said, either is fine with me. And it just so happened that my initial match was with a gay couple. And um, they had initially planned to just have an egg donor and go the gestational kind of route. And they continued having problems with different egg donors, canceling last minute, cycles not working, whatever the case may be. And so I just remember one day I was like, you know, I don't know if you guys are aware, but if you're having problems getting an egg donor, I'm open to using my own eggs totally up to you. Just let me know. And so that of course spurred those conversations. And we ultimately decided to do that. 
so that was kind of my first um, experience with both surrogacy and IUI because we did an IUI and we actually did a medicated IUI for that one. Uh, went through a, a reproductive endocrinologist, an RE, and uh, did um, a round of Clomid and got pregnant with twins on the first mm. track. So wow. it was a heck of an introduction for me. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. My goodness. <clears throat> but um, so then as I went on with, you know, continuing, I did multiple surrogacies after that. I've actually done a total of four different families. Um, so I've had eight babies in total, two of which are mine, um, two sets of twins out of that. So, um, I've had a lot, I've brought a lot of humans into this world. You sure have. And have all of them been traditional surrogacies? They were, they were all your eggs? They have. Yep. They absolutely have. And that wasn't planned, you know, it wasn't intended. They've also all happened to be for, um, gay men. Some were couples, some were single, it just kind of, that's just who I ended up matching with. And, you know, because they were gay men, they didn't have the eggs, obviously. So it was just mm-hmm. easier than them having to also try to find an egg donor. You know, I wow. have good health, good history with my pregnancies, good genetics. Wow. <laughs> so That's fantastic. Yeah. I just, I love this story. I, I met you um, a, a couple years ago, but <clears throat> got to hang out with you trying to conceive um, your last surrogate. In the Alaskan baby. wilderness. <laughs> yeah, in the Alaskan wilderness, checking your temperature and all these things. It was fantastic. Yes, that was interesting. Um, and aside from the real um, deep, deep knowledge and experience and understanding of not only your own body, but cycles and um, really understanding conception at a much deeper way than most people. Um, You are also a midwife who now offers IUI to clients. And so that, tell us about that leap um, in your, in your life and your training. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just kind of seemed natural for me to move into that being someone who had experienced it myself, you know, multiple times. Um, And like I said, my first, my first two surrogacy journeys were through a reproductive endocrinologist. So I saw firsthand, um, one was medicated, actually multiple of them were medicated. Um, And so I saw firsthand how expensive it was, how time consuming it could be. And, you know, every single time that I had to go to the RE was a fee for the intended parents. And Every medication that I had to take, if it was medicated, was a fee. And every ultrasound to check on what was happening, you know, and as you get, especially with medicated ones, as you get closer to ovulation or, um, you know, your, uh, sorry, I just, my brain quit working for a second there. Um, Or if you're monitoring, you know, how many um, eggs you're producing, if you're on follicle stimulating hormones and stuff, you're doing more and more uh, ultrasounds to check on all of that. And each one of those is a fee, you know, and they're not cheap. It's a costly fee. And, um, you know, I just, as a midwife, one of the big things I think that we try to kind of focus on is making midwifery care or obstetric type care, pregnancy care, more, uh, you know, attainable, more affordable. And so it just kind of made sense to bring that into my circle 
And so I was very fortunate to learn the process from another um, Austin midwife that I had grown. She'd been, you know, a midwife for many, many years. And I kind of said, teach me your ways. You know, this is something that I want to offer. It's something that I've been through. And I want to just be able to provide it something, you know, easy, more easily attainable to families as an option, especially LGBTQIA families. Um, myself and my practice as a whole really focus on providing a place for safe, unbiased care for that community. And, you know, there are a lot of gay and lesbian families wanting to get pregnant and they need uh, either an IUI for a lesbian family or um, an IUI with a surrogate for a gay family. So it just kind of flowed very naturally for me and made sense uh, to be something that I provided. I love that. <clears throat> what a gift to your community. Um, and I know you actually just won an award for this actual um, uh, title. Tell, what, what, what was it again? I can't remember. Yes. Uh, so every year, um, Austin has the Austin Birth Awards. And it's, um, there's many different categories. And one of them is the best LGBTQIA resource. And so we have actually the two years that we've participated, we actually won that both years. So we're very proud That's of that. That's awesome. That is very awesome. Um, and what a resource. How, how incredible. You're just outside Austin. Right? Yes, I'm just north of Austin. I'm kind of right in between Waco and Austin and Belton. That's awesome. Well, so <clears throat> when you started with a reproductive endocrinologist and, and medication and a very, a very technical um, medical environment, but then I, I think several of your experiences, you went lower tech and started yeah. exploring other ways to do this, both medically and legally. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, in Texas at least, home insemination is legal for surrogacies. Um, there's obviously gray areas in the law itself as there is just with traditional surrogacy, but it's not something that is illegal like it can be in, in many other states. So as I mentioned, my first two uh, journeys were medicated through the RE and that was just because that was their protocol. You know, it was, it wasn't because I had any fertility issues. It was just, that's what we do. We want to up the chances of, do, you know, getting pregnant on the first try. And um, the first journey resulted in twins. The second one started as twins. And then we had one that just stopped growing around nine weeks. So it ultimately was a singleton birth, but it started as twins as well. And my first surrogacy pregnant pregnancy was medically fine, but it, it was very taxing on me. It was my first twin pregnancy. I didn't know anything about having twins. Uh, I probably wasn't as healthy as I could have been for that situation. And I was kind of miserable. <laughs> By the end, I was ready to be done even more so than a normal pregnancy. So I didn't really want to continue down the medicated route, um, mostly for that reason, because I knew that it increased my chance of carrying twins even more so, but also because we just don't know what the long-term effects of all of those medications are. Yeah, we don't. We really don't. It's true. Yeah. And, you know, I've never had a problem getting pregnant. So I was like, surely I can do this on my own. So my, for my third journey, um, I went into it being very, very upfront with people that I was talking to that I wanted to start out with home insemination. And if that, you know, was unsuccessful for several months, then we could consider moving 
over to like a medicated or monitored of some sort. Um, so I was very lucky to match with a wonderful um, single gay rabbi out of New York City, and he was absolutely fine with that. So um, I just, you know. Wait, a single gay rabbi out of New York City? That's like yes. my favorite. That's yes. fantastic. He's so fantastic. I love him to oh, death. God. Um, what a fantastic family to be connected to. Yes. And he's just a wonderful person, you know, just like he, he emulates everything you would think of when you think of a gay rabbi, very warm and friendly and uh, just has that, you know, teacher advisor attitude to him in the warmest of ways. And I love him dearly. What a great um, dad. Yeah, he absolutely is. So, so yeah, so I just said, you know, Hey, I'm going to start tracking my cycle and, um, you know, I'm very, of course, knowledgeable in utilizing cervical mucus, cervical position, temperatures. Uh, I would use the, that could be a whole podcast on its own. Yeah, totally. It definitely could. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I just started monitoring those uh, for several months to get a really good idea of my cycle. And, um, you know, there's a lot of logistics involved when you're working with someone who's halfway across the country, but essentially I would just say, Hey, you know, from the moment my period started, I'd say, we're looking at roughly this time frame, and every day that we got closer and I had more information to base it off of, we tried to narrow down the dates and we just planned for him to come out, you know, around three or so days when we were expecting my ovulation and hope that the timing worked. And, you know, I was very fortunate to have a relatively regular period. So we were able to time it pretty accurately. So, um, you know, I called them and said, hey, we're within like a three or four day window. You should consider coming out. So he came out and then we would just do, um, you know, in Sims, he'd come to my house and I'd give him like a, I, well, we started the first time with soft cups. So I would just give him the soft cup itself and he would ejaculate into that so that the sample was right there where we needed it. And then I could insert it and I would just leave it in, um, getting a little personal here. Sometimes I would, uh, then go into my own room and try to orgasm because of course there is some scientific research that shows mm -hmm. that orgasm can potentially help, um, you know, draw that sperm up where it needs to be and lay there, you know, with my hip, like a pillow under my hips for 15 minutes or so. And then I just leave the soft cup in for six plus hours, however long, um, until I kind of thought to take it out just to kind of give everything as much of a chance to get through the cervix as possible. And we um, got pregnant on the first try. And wow. we did actually uh, miscarry that one. Um, it ended up being Looked like by the time I actually had, well, we thought it was a blighted ovum at first. And then when I went in for the DNC, cause I wasn't passing it, um, at about 13, 14 weeks was when I went in for the DNC and it had turned out that it had stopped growing at about six weeks. Like I think there was just a fetal pole and that was about it. So, mm. um, so then as soon as my cycle returned, I let him know we had planned to wait a cycle or two to try again. And, um, on a whim, I was just kind of like, Hey, it looks like I'm going to be pretty regular again this month. If you want to come try, you can. And I think, you know, 
I got a, I was using the, the digital monitor that has like the, the low, high and peak fertility. So I got high fertility and I said, Hey, if you do want to try this month, I'm probably going to ovulate in the next day or two. So if you can make it, we can try, if not, no big deal. And he's like, well, let me see what I can do. And he was on a plane, like either that afternoon or the next morning and came out was there for like one night and left the next day. We did like two insims and got pregnant. Wow. <laughs> With twins. Oh. So apparently I'm just a <laughs> twin maker. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, uh, you and know, no, no Clomid or not, nothing, nothing, like that. nothing wow. at all. Nope. That was a shock to me when we went for the, yeah. the I had a feeling, uh, my betas, I know it's, it's not, an indication, but my beta numbers, early beta numbers were relatively high. And I just like had this feeling and I was like, I need an early ultrasound because I'm just not going to settle my mind until I know one way or another. And sure enough, went in for an early ultrasound, like right around six to seven weeks and two little fetal poles. Wow. And, uh, wow. Nine months later had two baby girls. <laughs> wow. What an amazing story. Yeah. So that was my first introduction to the, the more, um, you know, organic in-home insemination method. And, um, so then with my final journey, um, we decided to kind of up the ante. We did both home insims again with just like a soft cup, um, and decided the, the dads wanted to also do one IUI every cycle just to kind of hopefully increase our chances. Cause you know, as you know, but maybe not everyone listening knows, you know, with an insem, you're just simply putting the semen in the vaginal canal against the cervix where the IUI, of course, we're washing it and we're placing it up inside the uterus near the fallopian tube. So the theory being that you're kind of cutting the sperm's path in uh, you know, short, so they have less, less they have to travel and, and make their way. So hopefully increasing the chance, um, which I always find interesting because if you talk to an RE, you know, they're, they're going to tell you that the chance of IUI pregnancy is roughly 10 to 20% every cycle, which is about the same as two healthy, you know, male and female timing their sex appropriately every month. So it always kind of, there's a disconnect there for me that um, doing those measures doesn't even slightly increase the risk statistically. Um, and I'd be really interested, you know, maybe someday I'll do my own study to see, because obviously most people who are going to an RE or having IUIs are already having some form of infertility issue, even if it's unknown. And a lot of those cases are included in those statistics and those numbers. Right. And so, right. you know, it'd be interesting if you could find people willing to do IUIs who maybe necessarily didn't need them. Yeah. Is it, is it more successful than, than right. yeah. Yeah. That's a really fantastic premise. Well, so, um, gosh, what a fascinating and intricate history you've had. Thank you for being willing to share it with us. Um, just for fun, will you give us the rundown? You've had, um, eight, how many pregnancies? Okay. Well, I have to think about this for a second. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so I had my first, my daughter, I had her in 2007. And then I had my son in 2008. 
And then I had boy girl twins in 2013. And then I had uh, the singleton boy who started as twins in 2015. And then I had the two twin girls in 2017. Yep. And then I just had uh, a girl, my last ever, um, in August of last year of 2019. Mm, congratulations. Thank you. So amazing. So four and the separate surrogacy journeys. Four separate surrogacy journeys, four different families, but mm-hmm. six kiddos in that. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Well, so um, <clears throat> it's not the subject of this podcast, but um, you also um, have been doing research on the legal aspects of surrogacy um, and specifically traditional surrogacy like yourself. And um, I don't know if you could sum it up in, in a, a short little blurb, but um, what is traditionally done and, and what are you sort of, what have you played with in the last couple journeys? So traditional surrogacy is a very touchy subject for many. Um, I'm very fortunate that in Texas it's legal, uh, which is actually widely misunderstood. Many people believe it's illegal in Texas. Um, And what it actually is, is... (laughs) that you can do it, but you cannot be guaranteed that your contract will be enforced in the court of law. So if there ever were to be uh, an issue that arose um, where you went to court with the intended parents over child custody or something crazy like that, you never know which way it's going to go. It's really going to depend on the judge. There just isn't precedent yet. Yeah, there just isn't. um, And you know, most states consider, even for gestational surrogates, when it comes down to, you know, you always hear about the crazy stories, which as often as we hear about them and as many Lifetime movies as there are about them, they're very actually few and far between. Um, But a lot of times if a surrogate, even a gestational surrogate, for whatever reason, changes her mind and wants to keep the baby, often the courts will side with her because in the eyes of the law in most states, the mother is whoever births the child, mm-hmm. um, regardless of genetics. So even mm-hmm. in gestational surrogacy, there can be some, some touchy things. But with traditional, you actually are genetically yeah. the mother. Um, mm-hmm. And so it becomes very blurry in the legal waters. And um, it's one of the main reasons that you don't hear about it being done very often. It takes a very high level of trust uh, between the, the parents, the intended parents and the surrogate. And, um, especially if you're a first time traditional surrogacy or traditional surrogate, because nobody knows if you're crazy, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's essentially how it's kind of looked at. Um, that's a fantastic, like hashtag. Nobody knows if you're crazy. <laughs> you're not proven I'm crazy yet, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and very often you kind of get questioned, like, why would you want to do that? And, So I've many times I've had to explain that, you know, just because a baby is genetically by DNA under a microscope related to me does not make me its mother, you know, in and of itself. I'm not raising it. Um, You know, even when I'm pregnant, I, 
I still would have a connection with these babies. I'm still feeling this baby move and grow inside of me and hear its heartbeat and things like that. But it's so completely different from the connection that I had with my own children and knowing, you know, these were my babies and preparing their nursery and buying things for when they arrived and stuff like that. Um, and ultimately what it came down to for me was seeing, you know, I stayed in very close contact with the, the intended parents all throughout the pregnancy, sent pictures of my belly, got videos of the baby moving, um, you know, told them they could come out for any appointments they wanted to, updated them, things like that. So, you know, to see them go through that excitement and, you know, expectation of this baby, it couldn't have, you know, nothing I could have felt toward that baby I was carrying could have made up for seeing that and wanting to give them this gift. And knowing, you know, as a parent myself, knowing how that felt for when I had my kids, you know, I wouldn't want to take that away from somebody. So, um, but yeah, so legally it's, there are many states that it's uh, completely illegal, traditional surrogacy, you cannot do it at all. And so you'll find intended parents who are looking into the traditional surrogacy route, looking at specific states, you know, California, I know for sure, and like Texas and Florida, um, and there's, there's several others. There's, there's actually a decent handful, but out of, you know, the full 50, 50 states plus territories, um, I would say maybe a third of it has either, it's either legal or there are no laws against it. So it's illegal. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and it seems to be getting even more, I mean, things are leaning more toward less states allowing it. You know, it's kind of going the illegal direction as opposed to more states opening up, which is sad, of course, because with gestational surrogacy, there's no way to not go an IVF route. Yeah. And that's yeah. very time consuming, very expensive. Um, you know, there, even if you took out the cost of the medications and the doctor's visits and those types of things, just to get pregnant, you have to compensate unless you find someone, you know, who's willing to do it altruistically, every party involved. So you're not only now compensating a surrogate for her time um, or their time, however they identify, but you're also compensating the egg donor. And that whole process costs money for them to retrieve the eggs. So you have two people involved that are getting their own compensation, most likely, and also doctors and visits and medications involved for both of them. So it's very, very expensive and very difficult and lawyers contracts for both of them. And, you know, it's just everything's double almost except for the pregnancy itself. So it's not as Which handful. sometimes is also double because it's twins. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So it makes it even more unattainable for more people. So, um, and not that, you know, I'm a firm believer that traditional surrogates, if they're compensated, should not be compensated any less than a gestational surrogate. Uh, there seems to be a weird belief sometimes or in the, the traditional surrogacy circle that uh, you can pay a traditional surrogate less. But to me, it, you know, if you're going to compensate somebody for the time, I mean, it's a 24 seven thing. You don't get to hang up your pregnancy at the end of the day and go home. You're pregnant <laughs> even when you're sleeping. And you know, there's numerous health factors involved um, on a 
kind of scary personal note, I nearly lost my life in this last delivery. Um, and that's a very real thing that can happen. So, you know, and even on a smaller level, I can't do certain things with my kids. You know, I couldn't go ride the roller coasters with them if I wanted to, or, you know, maybe horseback ride as much or, you know, like there's or go just, out for a night of drinking or go out for a night of drinking with my husband or, you know, whatever the case may be. So you definitely give up a lot. And I, you know, there's a misconception that you can make a lot of money as a surrogate and, uh, 99.9% of us do not do it for the money. Um, and in fact, if you broke it down hourly, you make like $3 an hour, <laughs> you know, even, even a well-compensated surrogate. So, um, you know, the compensation just kind of pays for your time and hassle of being pregnant and going to doctor's visits and taking prenatal vitamins and eating healthy and, you know, not being able to do certain things and, and potentially putting your health, you know, at danger. Even if you don't almost die, you can develop gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or, you know, so many numerous things that yeah, I was thinking about it in preparing for this call, and I was thinking um, an analogy might be like being a soldier. Like, if you're deployed, you're 100% in harm's way. Mm-hmm. You can't, like, like, when you go to bed, you're like, oh, now I'm safe. <laughs> right, right. You're, you're like 100% committed to the nine-month tour of duty that you're doing. Exactly. And you might get hazardous pay, but it still doesn't compensate you for the risk of life. Exactly. And so to me, it feels like surrogates are, are in that same category. They're, they're risking their lives for yeah. a, another entity. Essentially, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great analogy. I mean, and that doesn't, I mean, I don't want to dramatize it because no, a, but, a, lot, I mean, a lot of pregnancies are very safe. I mean, I don't need to say that. Absolutely. But you never know. But, you know, but you, you never do know. never know. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Um, in yeah. life or in labor. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And every midwife will attest to that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, um, what, what a fascinating conversation. What a fascinating resource you are. Um, let's, um, let's shift now and, and, and talk about um, if, you, if you were um, – a, uh, a family trying to plan a pregnancy um, and you didn't uh, want to do a very medical path, um, you couldn't do um, a traditional uh, male-female um, conception, what, what, how, how would they start to get information like you have gotten? Like you've amassed this wealth of information and and I'm still going to ring the bell that you should start a consultancy for this because people need this information. Um, Where would they start? Because right now in mainstream America, um, there's basically the doctor or a turkey baster. And (laughs) neither of those are great information for for people. So where would you start? Where would you send them? I mean, it's really going to depend ultimately on the specific situation, of course. Um, do you have sperm to work with or do you need to acquire some is obviously going to be a, a big thing to consider in the beginning. Um, so that's kind of the first question you have to ask. You know, obviously, like if you're, say, a lesbian couple, uh, nobody has the sperm, I'm assuming, to, you know, work with. So in that case, you have to either start t- considering 
do you want to reach out to friends and see like if you have a good male friend or someone that you trust to see uh, if they would be consider you know consider donating to you and of course that involves its own series of questions and legalities to it um, you certainly can't just decide overnight to ask you know your best male friend and him say sure and then the next day try to get pregnant um, if you do have it and for whatever reason you're uh, having some troubles um, I always I always recommend if, if say like hetero couples call me and ask about IUIs the first thing that we do is we have a, a fertility consultation because I want to know first of all what are you doing to track your ovulation and time your intercourse and do things like that. More often than not, those consultations end up in a couple of educational appointments and I never see them again because they either get pregnant or you know whatever. Um, because I find that a very large majority of you know, people with uteruses don't fully know you know, they don't know about their cycle. They don't know how to properly track it. Um, you know, most, the most common answer I get when I say, well, how are you tracking your cycle is, well, I put on the calendar when my period starts and ends. Yeah. And there's so much more to it. I mean, yes, that's so much important, more. obviously, but that tells that's you. That's like the ground floor and you can exactly. go to probably a hundred floors exactly. with fertility awareness. Yeah. Right. Totally. So that's yeah. the first thing I always ask, you know, is how, how are you tracking? How are you timing, you know, your intercourse, things like that. Cause I find that a lot of the time it just takes some education and, you know, teaching people how their body really works and what signs it gives us to know what's yeah. happening. Um, yeah. You know, and I always recommend that you track your cycle at least three months if, if they're relatively regular, certainly longer if they're somewhat irregular, uh, to get a really good just general idea of what's happening. And um, I think if you only do one thing for tracking, do temps, basal temps. It's going to be the easiest slash most effective way if you're just going to do one. Obviously, the more you do, the more information you have. Um, but that's usually kind of my go-to advice is if you are going to pick and choose, pick that one. Um, because you also can do it daily as opposed to, you know, like the ovulation strips that you pee on. You only do those during certain times. They only tell you so much, like when you're actually ovulating. Your basal temps, you can start to see your graphs and really see what's happening with your body and get a little bit of a better idea. Um, so that's kind of where I usually recommend people start is that's awesome i'm a really big fan of um using uh, integrating that data with an app um and there's yes. many out there i love i period um but there could be there's fertility friend and fertility mm -hmm. minder and there's like there's so many of them and I, I think it's 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 just such great habit to get in the habit of just every morning chart your symptoms and then pretty right. soon you have this really information rich graph that you can Absolutely. make decisions based on yeah mm -hmm. this is great thanks for that well, so um, what about if they wanted to be like, okay, then what? Where do I go? Who do I call? Can I see a midwife for this? Yeah, I mean, certainly I would just say start calling, you know, look up, act as if you're pregnant and look up, start researching midwives and find someone who, um, if, if, you, if you have the luxury of being able to choose, find someone who 
you know, read through their website, read their bio, see what their philosophy on life, their philosophy on birth, things like that are. Ideally, if you go to a midwife for IUI, you would see, they'd see you through, you know, they would care for you throughout your pregnancy and, you know, help you welcome this life into the world. Um, but even if that's not your goal, even if you eventually want to go to the hospital or whatever the case may be, find someone who um, speaks to you, you know, that you, you feel like you would connect with. And then the next step would just be to call. If it doesn't say directly on their website that they offer, you know, fertility planning or IUI services, then call and ask them. And it's really going to vary location to location, certainly state to state, um, you know, who offers it and who doesn't. And even if they don't, they might know someone in, in your community who does. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. But, and yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that that would be the first place to start, of course, would just be sending emails, making phone calls, reaching out and initiating that contact to find out who offers. That's that. awesome. That's awesome. And so um, IUI, um, intrauterine insemination, is different than just um, an insemination or a, a vaginal um, sperm wash or what you, you know all, all the different terms we have for it um and and IUI is different because we have to actually prepare the sperm before it crosses through the cervix so um I've certainly done this in my practice I know that you do in yours um will you give a little a little outline of that yeah like what so, happens and why I think that would be interesting for people yeah so what we do it, when you when you come in for uh, an IUI is um, obviously either the man comes with you or you bring your sample from you know say a sperm bank or whatever the case may be, but we get the sample somehow in you know a cup a container of some sort whatever the case may be, and then what we do is we mix it with a couple of different. Um, Oh, the word is escaping me at the moment. Solutions. Um, so the first one is uh, a wash. And because, you know, when a man ejaculates and you have a sample, it's sperm and semen. You know, there's the fluid and then there's the sperm in the fluid. And with an IUI, when you're, when you're inserting it directly into the uterus, you don't want the semen with it. You just want the sperm. Um, for numerous reasons, it can have a negative reaction with your body or vice versa. Your body can have a negative reaction with it. Uh, it can cause infections, cramping, all kinds of things. So we don't want to just inject that directly. It's a pretty bacteria rich environment, actually. Yeah. Like yeah. all human bodily uh, products, but, but the uterus is not, it doesn't love to be um, inundated with bacteria. Um, that's what the, the cervical film and the cervical mucus is, is about screening out that. So this is an artificial way to screen that out. So it's like a wash and we centrifuge it, right? That's what you do as well. Yeah. Yes. Tell us more. Yeah. So we put it in the centrifuge and, um, I've noticed that kind of depending on where you order your washes and your kits from, some of them have different instructions. It's usually a 15 to 30 minute spin to wash it. Um, then you put it, you take the sample, so it kind of separates um, the sperm. We call it a pellet because it just kind of looks like this little pellet of the sperm. Um, and then we take that out and, or actually the way I usually do it is we take the fluid out and leave the sperm at the, the 
pellet at the bottom. And then we put in another uh, media and spin it again for usually about five minutes. The kit that I use um, is about another five minutes. And then once you have that final spin, that is the fluid that you can insert directly into. Yeah. And that fluid is usually, um, it's kind of a protein rich environment to help keep them alive. And it has a little bit of antibiotic in it as well so that it doesn't cause infection. And yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what's safe to pass through the cervix. Correct. Correct. So then we use this long, uh, you know, very thin catheter and draw up to, you know, just enough to get the pellet itself inside of the catheter. And then the rest is very similar to a typical pelvic exam, speculum exam. Um, you know, we use a speculum so that we can visualize the cervix and um, insert it. And then you insert it until you feel, you know, a little bit of uh, resistance. Resistance. Thank you. It's been a long yeah. day. A uh, little bit of resistance and you come back slightly. So you reach the end of the uterus. So you're up near the fallopian tubes. And then you simply use the little plunger end and uh, inject it into the uterus. It's actually really relatively simple. Um, usually relatively pain free and painless for whoever you know is being inseminated possibly a little bit of cramping as we go through the cervix and, and after um but usually not even that it's such a small tiny catheter that you know it usually just feels kind of the same as when you're getting a pap smear mm-hmm. and you just feel the the friction on the cervix a little bit and then um i like to have them remain we, I like to do it with like a pillow or something already under their hips. So they're already kind of elevated. And then we remove everything and cover them up and just let them lie there for 15 to 20 minutes or so. And then you're good to go about your day and cross your fingers, awesome. hope and pray. <laughs> do a rain now. Awesome. Well, so there are certainly some people who may want to have um, midwifery support that actually um, have infertility issues where they might be better served by a reproductive endocrinologist. But, but a whole bunch of folks um, in the traditional surrogacy world, um, in um, the LGBTQ world that want to have uh, babies or um, uh, certain other circumstances where actually this is incredibly safe, incredibly appropriate um, kind of care. Like they don't need all the bells and whistles. Yeah. Um, I've done this in folks' homes before. Um, They don't need to come into an office. Um, The cool thing about um, this level of care is that um, you just need a skilled provider. (laughs) You don't really need the location. Um, It can be anywhere. And I I love this um, kind of humanizing the process. Um, And in families that I've worked with before, I will take care of the technical piece, um, like speculum and finding the cervix and all that. But then I love it when the partner actually is the one that pushes the plunger and has yeah. the moment of being like, hey, we're doing this together. That's so special. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really special to support a family in this. It's like, it's really midwifery care. This is what we do. Yes. Like, we also don't really care about catching the baby. Like, I'll show you how to do right. it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's so it's- empowering. Yeah, and it, you hit the nail on the head because it it can be such a cold clinical thing for for families to have to go through, especially if you are doing it at like a clinic or with an RE something like that. Um, and you know you're already struggling with potentially, depending on your reason, 
you know, maybe have had some trouble getting pregnant or, um, you know, this is your only option if you, you know, say are a gay couple or something like that. And yeah, anything that we can do to just make it that much more uh, of a memorable thing for them in a good kind of way, uh, definitely goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And, um, midwifery has been sort of pioneering this, um, in a lot of ways, um, in the birth process, we're seeing more and more, um, interesting non-traditional families being born together um, on social media. There was just um, a really fantastic series that went around uh, um, of the intended parent in the birth tub with the birthing parent receiving their own baby. And that was just so beautiful. Um, We'll put a link in the show notes. And then also just yesterday, I think there was this great, um, image of a intended um, mother receiving or, or cuddling her baby in Lying. the birth bed, in the birth bed next to the, the surrogate who the placenta was still inside. Yes, so the I cord is like going across the surrogate's leg into the, the intended mom's arms. And I was just like, oh, it's so beautiful. So beautiful. So beautiful and so incredible, so monumental. Just the way that families can be created and born in so many ways is just, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, and now we're seeing that actually with um, more midwives uh, learning and understanding IUI, this is, this is a part of that. We're, we're adding this other level right. of supporting families right from the beginning um, I loved offering it in my clinic, and I know that you do as well. Um, can we just do a little note for uh, the midwives who might be listening? Where can they get this training if they want to? Do you offer this training? Can we make um, you offer this training? Offer it. Yeah, if if someone reaches out to me, I'm happy. You know, if they are near or are willing to travel or whatever, I'm more than willing to show. It's really very simple, and honestly, I think if you were shown how to do it once. That's all you would do. Yeah. And that's I agree too. That's the key, you know, it's just having people yeah. out there who are willing to show you and to teach you. And like yeah. I said, I mean, midwives have syringes and catheters and centrifuges and like we have all the equipment. Right. It's you have everything. Literally, and we've done plenty of pelvic exams. So it's just putting the pieces together if, if you haven't done that before. So I think it's totally within the midwifery scope. And I encourage midwives to put this into their repertoire because it helps families so much. Um, let's make a little video, you and I, about training, and we'll share it. What yeah, do you think? I'd love to. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Anyway, I can collaborate with you. I always say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what fun! Um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, um, your expertise, your personal story. Uh, you're just such a gem in midwifery, oh, and such a gem you. of a human. I'm so glad to know you. You too. Do you have any um, words of wisdom? Any last advice for? Um, uh, people who want to be pregnant, uh, midwives who want to help? I would just say, honestly, one of the biggest things is don't be afraid to reach out. Uh, Don't be afraid to ask questions. And, you know, I wouldn't be here where I am today if I hadn't asked questions and challenged the norm a little bit. And, you know, that's one of the biggest things that we can do. You know, like I said, at the very beginning of this, I was fortunate enough to know a midwife who did them. And I said, can you teach me? And she was more than happy to oblige and pass down her skills. And I feel like more times than not, people, especially midwives, are willing to do that, willing to train the next generation. Um, 
you know, of midwives coming in. So, and then as far as, you know, families who are trying to get pregnant, um, education is really key. You know, if you, you don't know what you don't know. So ask someone, you know, ask a professional, Hey, I'm trying to get pregnant. Am I doing everything that I can? You know, even if you're not necessarily having problems getting pregnant yet, um, ask questions, read books, Google, though, be careful on Google. <laughs> right. <laughs> But like search for the information. It's out there. Absolutely. Yeah. And just ask questions and, you know, um, yeah, just reach out to your community. There's, I think we, and I'm hoping that after all of this, you know, COVID thing calms down and stuff, one of the things we'll gain from that is, is uh, expanding our, our local community a little more, you know, like getting to know what those around us offer and have. And, um, I think a lot of people probably don't even know that there's midwives in their community or how many uh, and just doing a little bit of research and calling them and, and asking them, hey, do you provide this service? And if they say no, do you know anyone who does or can you guide me in the right direction um, can be a huge question that leads you on a path that takes you where you're looking to go. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you, my friend. Stay in touch. Stay well. I love you. You too. Love you too. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Bye.